Section 9 of History of Modern Philosophy by Alfred William Benn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 The Theorists of Knowledge. Part 3 Kant. The English philosophy of experience and the continental philosophy of a priori spiritualism, after their brief convergence in the metaphysics of Berkeley, parted company once more, the empirical tradition being henceforth represented not only by Hume, but in a more or less anti-Christian and much more superficial form, by Voltaire, Rousseau, and the French encyclopedists while the Leibnizian philosophy was systematized and taught in Germany by Wolff, and a dull but useful sort of modernizing Aristotelianism was set up under the name of common sense by Thomas Reed, 1710-1796, and his school in the Scottish universities. The extraordinary genius who was to recombine the parted currents in a speculative movement of unexampled volume, velocity, and depth, showed nothing of the precocity that had distinguished Berkeley and Hume. Immanuel Kant, 1724-1804, the son of a saddler of Scottish extraction, was born at Königsberg in Prussia, where he spent his whole life holding a chair at the university from 1770 to 1797. It is related that on the day of his death, a small bright cloud was seen sailing alone across the clear blue sky of such a remarkable appearance that a crowd assembled on the bridge to watch it. One of them, a common soldier, exclaimed, That is Kant's soul going to heaven. A touching and beautiful tribute to the illustrious German whose lofty, pure, and luminous spirit it was uniquely fitted to characterize. Kant grew up among the Pietists, a school which played much the same part in Germany that the Methodists and the Evangelicals played in England. Indeed, it was from them that John Wesley received his final inspiration. The Königsberg student came in time to discard their theology, while retaining the stern Puritan morality with which it was wedded, and even rationalist as he became, some of their mystical religiosity. What drew him away to philosophy seems to have been first the study of classical philology and then physical science, especially as presented to him in Newton's works. And so the young man's first ambition, after settling down as a university teacher at Königsberg, was to extend the Newtonian method still further by explaining on mechanical principles the origin and constitution of that celestial system whose movements Newton had reduced to law, but whose beginning he had left unaccounted for except by, what was not science, the direct fiat of omnipotence. Kant offered a brilliant solution of the problem in his Natural History of the Heavens, 1755, a work embodying the celebrated nebular hypothesis rediscovered forty years later by Laplace. It has been well observed that great philosophers are mostly, if not always, what at Oxford and Cambridge would be called double firsts. That is, apart from their philosophy, they have done first-class work in some special line of investigation, 
as Descartes by creating analytical geometry, Spinoza by applying biblical criticism to theology, Leibniz by discovering the differential calculus, Locke by his theory of constitutional government, Berkeley by his theory of vision, Hume by his contributions to history and political economy. Kant's cosmogony may have been premature and mistaken in its details, but his idea of the heavenly bodies as having originated from the condensation of diffused gaseous matter still holds its ground, and although the more general idea of natural evolution as opposed to supernatural creation is not modern but Greek, to have revived and reapplied it on so grand a scale is a service of extraordinary merit. The next great event in Kant's intellectual career is his rejection of continental a priorism in metaphysics, for the empiricism of the English school, especially as regards the idea of causation. For a few years from 1762 to 1765, Kant accepts Hume's theory that there is nothing in any succession of events or in change generally to prove on grounds of pure reason that there must be more in it than a customary sequence. To believe that anything may happen without a cause does not involve a logical contradiction, and at that time he believed nothing to be known a priori, except that the denial of which involves such a contradiction. But on reconsidering the basis of mathematical truth, it seemed to him to be something other than the logical laws of identity and contradiction. When we say that seven and five are twelve, we put something into the predicate that was not affirmed in the subject. And also when we say that a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Yet the second proposition is as certain as the first, and both are certain in the highest degree, more certain than anything learned from experience, and needing no experience to confirm them. So much being admitted, we have to recognize a fundamental division of judgments into two classes, analytic and synthetic. Judgments in which the predicate adds nothing to the subject are analytic. When we affirm all matter to be extended, that is an instance of the former. For here we are only making more explicit what was already contained in the notion of matter. On the other hand, when we affirm that all matter is heavy, that is an instance of the latter or synthetic class, for we can think of matter without thinking that it has weight. Furthermore, this is not only a synthetic judgment, but it is a synthetic judgment a posteriori, for the law of universal gravitation is known only by experience but there are also synthetic judgments a priori. For, as we have just seen, the fundamental truths of arithmetic and geometry belong to this class, as do also by consequence all the propositions logically deduced from these, that is to say, the whole of mathematical science. Up to this point, Kant would have carried the whole Cartesian school, and more generally, all the modern Platonists along with him, while he would have given the English empiricists and their French disciples a rather hard nut to crack, for they would have had to choose between admitting 
that mathematics was a mass of identical propositions, or explaining, in the face of Hume's criticism, what claims to absolute certainty its truths any more than the law of causation possess. Now the great philosophical genius of Kant is shown by nothing more than this, that he did not stop here. Recognizing to the same extent as Locke and Hume that all knowledge comes from experience, at any rate in the sense of not coming from supernatural communications as Malbranche and Barclay thought, he puts the famous question, how are synthetic judgments a priori possible? Or, as it might be paradoxically expressed, how come we to know, with the most certainty, the things that we have not been taught by experience? The answer is that we know them by the most intimate experience of all, the underlying consciousness that we have made them what they are. Our minds are no mere passive recipients in which a mass of sensations poured in from some external source are then arranged after an order equally originated from without. There is a principle of spontaneity in all our subjectivity by which the objective order of nature is created. What Kant calls the matter of knowledge is given from without, the form from within. And this process begins with the imposition of the two great fundamental forms, space and time, on the raw material of sensation by our minds. By space and time, Kant does not mean the abstract ideas of coexistence and succession, nor does he call them, as some critics used incorrectly to suppose, forms of thought, but forms of intuition. We do not build them up with the help of muscular or other feelings, but are conscious of them in a way not admitting of any further analysis. The parts of space, no doubt, are coexistent, but they are also connected and continuous. More than this, positions in space do not admit of mutual substitution. The right-hand and left-hand glove are perfectly symmetrical, but the one cannot be superimposed on the other. Besides, all particular spaces are contained in universal space, not as particular conceptions are contained in a general conception, but as parts of that which extends to infinity and where each has an individual place of its own, repeating all the characters of space in general except its illimitable extension. And the same is true of time. With this further distinction from abstract succession, that succession may be reversed, whereas the order of past, present, and future is irreversibly maintained. The contemporary school of Reed in Scotland and the subsequent eclectic school of Victor Cousin in France would agree with Kant in maintaining that sensuous experience will not account for our knowledge of space and time. But they would protest in the name of common sense against the reduction of these apparently fundamental elements to purely subjective forms. They would ask with the German critic Trendelenburg, why cannot space and time be known intuitively and yet really exist? Kant furnishes no direct answer to the question, but he has suggested one in another connection. 
mathematical truth is concerned with spatial and temporal relations, and for that truth to be above suspicion and exception, we must assume that the objects with which it deals are wholly within our grasp, that our knowledge of them is exhaustive. But there could be no such assurance on the supposition that besides the space and time of our sensuous experience, another space and time existed independently of our consciousness as attributes of things in themselves. Possibly differing in important respects from ours, as for example, a finite or a non-continuous or a four-dimensional space and a time with a circular instead of a progressive movement. This easy assumption that reality accommodates itself to our intellectual convenience, instead of our being obliged to accommodate our theories of knowledge to reality, runs through and vitiates the whole of Kant's philosophy. But taking the narrower ground of logical consistency, one hardly sees how his principles can hold together. We are told that the subjectivity of space and time is not presented as a plausible hypothesis, but is a certain and indubitable truth. For in no other way can mathematical certainty be explained. The claim is questionable, but let it be granted. Immediately a fresh difficulty starts up. What is the source of our certainty that space and time are subjective forms of intuition? If the answer is because that assumption guarantees the certainty of mathematics, then Kant is reasoning in a circle. If he appeals, as in consistency he ought, to another order of subjectivity as the sanction of his first transcendental argument, such reasoning involves the regress to infinity. Again on Kant's theory, time is the form of intuition for the inner sense. So when we become conscious of mental events, we know them only as phenomena. We remain ignorant of what mind is in itself. But before the publication in 1770 of Kant's inaugural dissertation on The Sensible and the Intelligible World, everyone, plain men and philosophers alike, believed that the consciousness of our successive thoughts and feelings was the very type of reality itself, and they held this belief with a higher degree of assurance than that given to the axioms of geometry. By what right, then, are we asked to give up the greater for the less, to surrender our self-assurance as a ransom for Euclid's elements or even for Newton's Principia? Once more, surely mathematics is concerned not with space and time as such, but with their artificial delimitations as points, lines, figures, numbers, moments, etc. And it may be granted that these are purely subjective in the sense of being imposed by our imagination, with the aid of sensible signs, on the external world. What if this subjectivity were the true source of that peculiar certainty belonging to synthetic judgments a priori? True, Kant counts in our judgments about the infinity and eternity of space and time with other accepted characteristics of theirs as intuitive certainties. But there are thinkers who find the negation of such properties not inconceivable, so that they cannot be adduced as evidence of a priority, 
still less of subjectivity. Eleven years after the inaugural dissertation, Kant published his most important contribution to philosophy, The Critique of Pure Reason, 1781. Pure reason means the faculty by which ideas are obtained independently of all experience, and the critic's object is to ascertain how far such ideas are valid. As a preliminary to that inquiry, the question is also mooted, how is experience possible? It is answered by a critique of the understanding or faculty of conception, and as conception implies perception, this again is prefaced by a section in which Kant's theory of space and time is repeated and reinforced. It will be remembered that what started the whole of the new criticism was Hume's skeptical analysis of causation, and the central interest of the critique of pure reason lies in the effort to reconstitute the causal law in the light of the new theory of knowledge. But so enormous is the mass of technicalities piled up for this purpose as largely to conceal it from view and on its disclosure to give the idea of a gigantic machine set in motion to crack a nut. And the nut, after all, is not cracked. The shell slips from between the grappling surfaces long before they meet. We have seen how Kant interpreted every judgment as a synthesis of subject and predicate. Now, whether the synthesis be a priori or a posteriori, a study of the forms of judgment as enumerated in the common logic shows that there are four, and only four, ways in which it can be effected. All judgments fall under the following classes, quantity, quality, relation, and modality, terms whose meaning will be presently explained and each of these again is tripartite. We may say one, that one A is B, or that some A's are B, or that all A's are B. Two, that A is B, that A is not B, that not all A's are B. Three, that A is B, that A is B if C is D, that A is either B, C, or D, or four, that A may be B, that A is B, or that A must be B. The reason why there are four and only four classes is that judgment has to do with the subject in reference to the predicate, which gives quantity, with the predicate in reference to the subject, which gives quality, with the connection between the two, which gives relation, and with the synthesis between them in reference to our knowledge of it, which gives modality. Now, according to Kant, that there should be so many kinds of judgment and no more implies that our understanding contributes a formal element to the constitution of all knowledge, consisting of four combining principles without which experience would be impossible. He calls these categories, and they are enumerated in the following table. 1. Quantity. Unity, plurality, totality. 2. Quality. Reality, negation, limitation. 3. Relation. 
substance and accident, cause and effect, action and reaction, reciprocity. 4. Modality. Possibility and impossibility, existence and non-existence, necessity and contingency. A study of the categories suggests some rather obvious criticisms on the critical philosophy itself. 1. The first two terms in each triad evidently form an antithetical couple, of which the third term is the synthesis. Here we have the first germ of a disease by which the systems of Kant's successors were much more seriously infected. In the table, it is shown by the intrusion of limitation, a wholly superfluous adjunct to reality and negation, in the conversion of reciprocity into a wholly fictitious synthesis of substantiality with causation, and in the complete absurdity of making necessity a combination of possibility with existence. 2. Innate ideas, after they had been exploded by Locke, are reintroduced into philosophy by a sufficiently transparent piece of ledger domain. For assuming that the human intelligence possesses a power of organizing and drilling the sensuous appearances, which without its control would appear only as a disorderly mob, it by no means follows that they must therefore be referred to as an extra-phenomenal principle. But such a principle is plainly implied by the category of substance. Used in a scholastic sense, it does not mean the sensuous attributes of a thing taken altogether, but something that underlies and supports them. And Kant himself seems to take this category in that significance. For he claims to deduce from it the law of the indestructibility of matter, as if I could not say snow is white without committing myself to the assertion that the ultimate particles of snow have existed and will exist forever. 3. The substitution of causation for logical sequence, as implicated in the hypothetical judgment of relation, is perfectly scandalous, and still more scandalous is substitution of reciprocity or action and reaction, for disjunction. The last points require to be examined a little more in detail. The sequence of an effect to its cause has only a verbal resemblance to the sequence of a logical consequent to its reason. We declare categorically that every change has a cause which precedes it. Logical sequence is, on the other hand, as the very name of the judgment shows, hypothetical and may possibly not represent any actual occurrence besides being what causation is not, independent of time. A particular cause of causation may be hypothetical in respect to our belief that it actually occurred, never the law of causation itself as a general truth. And the same distinction applies with even greater force to the alleged connection between a logical disjunction and a physical reaction. When I say A is either B or C, but not both, there is only this much resemblance, that both cases involve the ideas of equality and of opposition. From the admission that A is not B, I infer that it is C or contrariwise. From the admission that it is B, 
I infer that it is not C, and in both instances with the same certainty. But this does not prove that the earth attracts the moon as much as the moon attracts the earth, only in opposite directions, nor yet that in certain instances all the heat lost by one body is gained by another. Kant had learned this much from Hume, that causation is essentially a relation of antecedence and consequence in time, and apparently his way of categorizing the relation, that is of proving its a priority, is to represent it as the logical form of reason and consequent, masquerading, so to speak, under the intuitional time form. Yet he frequently speaks of our senses as being affected by things in themselves, implying that the resulting sensations are somehow caused by those otherwise unknown entities. But since things in themselves do not, according to Kant, exist in space and time, they cannot be causally related to phenomena or to anything else. In his criticism of pure reason properly so called, that is, of inferences made by human faculty with regard to questions transcending all experience, Kant shows that of such things nothing can be known. The ideality of time and space once taken as proved, this amount of agnosticism seems to follow as a matter of course. It is idle to speculate about the possible extent or duration of a universe that cannot be described in terms of coexistence and succession. For each of us, at the dissolution of our bodily organism, time itself, and therefore existence as alone we conceive it, comes to an end. The law of causation, applying as it does to phenomena alone, offers no evidence for the existence of a God who transcends phenomena. Kant, however, is not satisfied with such a simple and summary procedure as this. He tries to show with most unnecessary pedantry that the conditional synthesis of the understanding inevitably leads thought on to the unconditional synthesis of the reason, only to find itself lost in a hopeless welter of paralogisms and self-contradictions. At this stage we are handed over to the guidance of what Kant calls the practical reason. This faculty gives a synthesis for conduct, as pure reason gives a synthesis for intelligence. All reason demands uniformity, order, law. Only what in theory is recognized as true has in practice to be imposed as right. In this way, Kant arrives at his formula of absolute morality. Act so that the principle of thy conduct may be the law for all rational beings. He calls this the categorical imperative, as distinguished from such hypothetical imperatives as act this way if you wish to be happy either here or hereafter, or act as public opinion tells you. Moreover, the motive as distinguished from the end of moral action should not be calculating self-interest or uncalculating impulse, but simply desire to fulfill the law as such. Previous moralists had set up the greatest happiness of the greatest number as the end of action, and such an aim does not lie far from Kant's philosophy. But they could think of no better motive for pursuing it than self-love or a rather undefined social instinct, and their summum bonum, 
would take the happiness of irrational animals into account, while Kant absolutely subordinates the interests of these to human good. A further coincidence between the utilitarian and the Kantian ethics is that in the latter also, the happiness of others, not their perfection, should be the end and aim of each. Finally, the philosophy of pure reason adopts from contemporary French thought as the governing idea of political organization what was long to be a principle of English utilitarianism, the liberty of each bounded only by the equal liberty of all. Nevertheless, the old postulate of a necessary connection between virtue and individual happiness reappears in Kant's ethical theory and leads to the construction of a new religious philosophy. His critique had left no place for the old theology, nor yet for that doctrine of free will so dear to most theologians. Its whole object had been to vindicate against Hume the necessity and universality of causation. Human actions then must, like all other phenomena, form an unbroken chain of antecedents and consequence. Nor does Kant conceal his conviction that with sufficient knowledge and powers of calculation, a man's whole future conduct might be foretold. Nevertheless, under the eighteenth-century idea of man as naturally the creature of passion or self-interest, he claims for us as moral agents the power of choosing to obey duty in preference to either. And this freedom is supposed to be made conceivable by the subjectivity of time and causation, outside of which as a thing in itself stands the moral will. That morality, whether as action or as mere intention, involves succession in time, is utterly ignored. Nor is this all. Assuming without warrant that the moral law demands an ultimate coincidence between happiness and virtue, made impossible in this life by human weakness, Kant argues that there must be an unending future life to secure time enough for working out a problem whose solution is infinitely remote. And finally, there must be an omnipotent moral God to provide facilities for undertaking that somewhat gratuitous psyche's task. Before Kant, moral theology had argued that the judge of all the world must do right, apportioning happiness to desert. It was reserved for him to argue conversely that for right to be done, such a judge must exist, and that therefore he does exist. In appreciating the services of Kant to philosophy, we must guard ourselves against being influenced by the extravagant panegyrics of his countrymen whose passion for square circles he so generously gratifies. Still, after every deduction for mere Laputian pedantry has been made, the balance of fruitful suggestion remains vast. 1. The antithesis of object and subject, although not counted among the categories of his critique, has remained a prime category of thought ever since. 2. The idea of a necessary limit to human knowledge given by the very theory of that knowledge, as distinguished from the skepticism of the Greeks, in other words, what we now call agnosticism, may not be final, but it still remains to be dealt with. 3. The possibility of reducing a priori knowledge to a form of unconscious experience 
has put an end to dogmatic metaphysics. 4. The problems of time and space have taken a central place in speculation. It has been shown what Hume did not see, that causation has the certainty of a mathematical axiom, and it has been made highly probable that all these difficulties may find their solution in a larger interpretation of experience. 5. Morality has been definitely dissociated from the appeal to selfish interests, whether in this life or in another. We have now to trace within the limits prescribed by the nature of this work the development of philosophy under Kant's German successors. End of section 9